to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. <laughs> that's that's entirely too much energy for, 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 <laughs> what, for what I got going on right now. Look, I mean, <laughs> I'm happy to be here, guys. I can see that. <laughs> uh, I watched the film, the Netflix film Marriage Story last night. Yeah. Ooh, that's yeah. on my list. How yeah, was you it? Did. Uh, it? It was good. It um, I, I, it's probably it's one of those movies where like it's good, but you don't ever really want to see it again. Um, oh sure. But it, it's funny, like it's a it's a very dark. Like I just said, I it's not it's not the kind of movie you're popping on to like watch all the time. But uh, speak for yourself. I have like I love revisiting movies that are like about deeply unpleasant. Things. <laughs> I've seen I've seen the movie Blue Valentine with Ryan Gosling mm. and uh, oh. and Michelle Williams like, re- like a bunch of times. The reason I bring it up is because this is a legal news podcast yes. and there's a lot of courtroom scenes and. Uh-huh. I would watch Ray Liotta and Lauren Dern go at each other in as as opposing lawyers. They're just like chewing the scenery. That's the best it's part of the amazing. movie. Oh yeah, that's the, yeah that that's that's performance. Of this the year. gives me a lot to look forward to because I haven't made it through that one yet. And Alan Alda is good list. too. Alan Alda is the the sort of nice guy lawyer. Yes, um, yeah, very good. But uh, yeah, we'll have to add that to our next uh, legal movie. Yeah, it'll be good. It'll but be good. Uh, it's available on Netflix. Check it out. But we have a good show. Um, we do indeed. Uh, we spoke with. Kara Bayless, um, about, uh, she wrote a really interesting story about prosecutorial misconduct um, and the sort of the, the, nat- the, the breadth of that problem, and more importantly, uh, the efforts to sort of hold prosecutors accountable when stuff goes sideways. Yeah, we stuff. had a really good talk with her about that, so you'll hear that a little later in the show, but uh, I know, Bill, you brought our actual first news story to talk about today. That's right. We're talking prosecutors again, this time federal prosecutors, uh, specifically bringing charges against 10 former football players today, former NFL players, um, uh, including pro bowler uh, Clinton Portis, um, former Washington Redskin. Um, They're accused of a brazen plan um, to defraud the league's retiree health benefits program, Um, apparently allegedly took something like $3 million. Um, We'll get into it more later, but it's sort of... uh, sad and a bummer to see this kind of thing happening because you hear so much about how much these former players need in terms of medical care and all sorts of neurological injuries and all that kind of stuff. So it sucks to see that that this kind of uh, this kind of situation happening. Well, I mean, it will surprise you guys. Not at all for me to say, what's this program again? It's (laughs) sports related. And I have no idea. Like, I didn't I don't think I've ever really thought through that. they Pretty tangentially sports. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is. But I don't think I've ever really thought through the mechanics of they are employees so they have to provide yes. retiree style benefits so sure how does this program work yeah it's it's um it's called the gene upshaw nfl player health reimbursement account plan which is a really long name really we're splashy gonna, we're gonna call it the plan or the fund from now on well i think um, when they named it they were hoping it wouldn't show up in too many lawsuits right. and people would have to talk about <laughs> One it would hope yes um so it was set up in the 2006 uh collective bargaining agreement struck between the league and the players union the point of it was to provide these tax-free reimbursements for out-of-pocket medical costs that were um, that weren't covered by um, by insurance that were incurred by players and their families and or I'm sorry, former players yeah. and their families. Um, there was a maximum of three hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars per player, but it was this you know it was meant to be this sort of this supplement where if you have more of these costs, you can dip into this fund. And what is the sort of central allegation here? They they clearly they they defrauded this in some way, but like what are the specifics? Yeah, the the general gist is that players were submitting 
the former players were submitting these fake claims to the fund, um, seeking reimbursement for really expensive medical equipment that they never ended up buying, and then they just pocketed the money. Um, it was typically around $50,000 per claim. And like I said, it added up to be more than $3 million. What um, kind of stuff did they say they were buying? Because that's uh, a lot of money. $50,000 per claim is big bucks. Yeah, they included really, the prosecutors included pretty specific stuff. There was the um, there was a hyperbaric oxygen chamber included oh, yeah. in there, um, an ultrasound machine that they specifically mentioned was uh, like they said it was for a doctor's office, meaning like it wasn't for home use. Yeah, it was right. a really expensive piece of equipment. Yeah. Um, uh, electromagnetic therapy devices for horses was another one that was included in the... This is a thing that prosecutors do sometimes. They include really specific stuff in these... Yeah. Especially um, like like the really splashy stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, so, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Maybe it happened. We'll see. Right. But yes. Um, but so uh, the, the other sort of piece here is that not, not only are the players alleged to have been doing this themselves, but that they were going out and finding other players, other former players who would be able to file these claims. Mm-hmm. And they would mm-hmm. say, look, you file this fake $50,000 claim. Um, we'll do everything for you. We'll take $10,000 from it and you'll get 40. And it, you know, rinse and repeat. And they did that apparently multiple times. Yeah. There's alleged to have been, it's sort of a, sort of a ring, an organizational component yeah. to it. So like I said, the, the, the claims added up to $3.9 million in phony claims and the plan uh, allegedly paid out over 3.4 million on those claims between June of 2017 and December of 2018. Uh, these are former NFL players. So they, there's a sort of a range of notoriety among them. Who, yeah. who, who, who tell us more about the, the who is implicated? So I mentioned uh, Clinton Portis up top, who was the probably the biggest name involved. Um, a former Pro Bowl running back for the Washington Redskins, retired in 2009. Pretty colorful guy. You'll remember the the wigs and the goofy outfits. I was going to say, I wonder if he'll uh, show up to court looking that way. Yeah. Probably not. Um, so the other players involved were Carlos Rogers, Robert McCune, John Eubanks, Tamarick Vanover. Andrus Brown, James Butler, Frederick Bennett, Carell Buckhalter, and Etrick Pruitt. Your guy, Carell Buckhalter. Carell Buckhalter. Your Philadelphia Eagles. You hate to see it. Say it ain't <laughs> so, Carell. Um, uh, McCune and Buckhalter are accused of a fairly specific charge. Um, at one point, they allegedly called the telephone number provided by the plan and impersonated other players to, oh, okay. you know, to get these claims pushed through. So, um, we'll see. Uh, it sounds, I don't know if we talked about it on the show before, but something like this popped up not long ago, right? Yeah. Um, it, it has a lot of sort of similar thematic or like tone whiffs of the, um, uh, the claims that the NFL made last year about the, the, there being widespread fraud in the settlement fund that was set up for the concussion lawsuit, Mm -hmm. um, which is obviously a huge uncapped, 65-year fund that's designed to pay uh, for players who have CTE and other concussion-related illnesses. Um, The league claimed last year that doctors and attorneys and players were all sort of gaming the system, doing stuff like taking drugs before you would go for a cognitive test so that you would qualify for it, all sorts of other stuff. So there's similar ideas of you're setting up this fund and then people are sort of abusing it. This is such a bummer. I mean, this whole story is really sad because those funds are set up for a reason. There's real problems here. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, you hear about sort of these, um, you know, these doomsday prophecies about football, that football is such a dangerous game that there's no way to make it a more safe game. And some of the efforts the league has made to improve safety and these funds, these settlement. I mean, obviously, the the concussion settlement was part of a lawsuit. But, um, you know, 
it it's it stinks to see that this these funds being set up that are meant to really help these players um, uh, being abused allegedly. And so you know you hope that when things like this do happen that uh, that 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 people are are brought to account for it. So on the topic of holding people to account, um, if you recall, not long ago we talked about a case where the state of New York was trying to use securities law to hold ExxonMobil accountable for uh, sort of its its secrecy relating to climate change. Um, and we got a decision in that, uh, uh, in that trial this week on Tuesday. Uh, the judge ruled that the company did not defraud its investors um, by using two sets of data projecting, uh, you know, climate change regulations and their impact. Um, the big takeaway here was, of course, that it was this really – uh, we've talked about the difficulty in pursuing climate change legal action. Yeah. And this was really dealt a blow to people who thought that this might provide like a new path. Yeah, I remember this one from the show before. It was really an interesting tactic of saying that there was, you know, secret data at play. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it was really one of those ones where it felt like um, it could be widespread if it had gone in the direction of those filing the, the, the suit. Yeah, the idea of a, of a legal vehicle for, yeah. right. for pursuing something. So let's let's backtrack a little, though, for people that maybe don't remember exactly what happened. Yeah. Could set us up here and give us a little refresher. Yeah, it's important, I think, to note off the top that it's, it's, it's not um, a, a, a suit about Exxon's role in climate change. That's not what it's about. It's a suit. This grew out of a, it's a securities fraud case. It grew out of this very long, like four-year-long investigation from the New York Attorney General's office. And very simply, it's a securities fraud case, so it gets wonky, but very simply, the state had argued that Exxon was keeping sort of two sets of books uh, in regard to climate change. There was one that it presented to the public that sort of accounted for potential costs that it would that it would have related to climate change regulation. And then there was an internal set which sort of uh, disregarded those costs. So they right. were saying, here we are we are accounting for climate change regulations, mm-hmm. but internally they were not. Uh, the state alleged that this basically, uh, you know, misrepresented the cost of the stock, and they had asked uh, the court for as much as $1.6 billion in restitution to shareholders. They're claiming, sh- claiming shareholders were defrauded. But we're here. talking about that this week because it didn't work. It did not work. Uh, the state judge uh, is named uh, Barry Ostrager. Uh, he ruled in favor of Exxon, and in pretty resounding fashion, it's like a 55-page uh, opinion, and he just said the state provided no evidence that um, any investors were actually misled by Exxon, and he read the evidence as saying that Exxon actually was uh, very public about the fact that it had two sets of data. Okay. It had told it told investors, like, we have different internal metrics that we're using for this stuff. Um, and therefore, you know, we're not obligated to share every single part of our sort of, you know, proprietary, you know, metric forecasting. Um, so uh, the state also put a lot of put a lot of its case upon this this report that Exxon circulated to its shareholders uh, at one point uh, that the judge said uh, all evidence shows that this report was basically ignored. And if it's oh. ignored, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't impacting the stock price. Like nobody was really listening to what you were saying. So. As a securities law matter, which is frankly a little more boring, I mean, the, 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 the nut of the opinion is that um, if you're making sort of tentative statements about, you know, projecting things that might happen in the future, yeah. you use cautionary language, you say, we anticipate this, very difficult to prove fraud in that regard. Um, and the judge um, really seemed to understand, even though this is a this type of securities fraud case wouldn't normally get this kind of coverage. Mm-hmm. It deals with climate change, and he really appeared to acknowledge that. This was an interesting quote, I thought. 
nothing in this opinion is intended to absolve ExxonMobil from responsibility for contributing to climate change in the production of its fossil fuel products. But ExxonMobil is in the business of producing energy, and this is a securities fraud case, not a climate change case. Doesn't that really get to the the whole thing here, right? That it's like it's Yeah. You were trying to use you were trying to find a way to do this and Basic. it was a creative way and it doesn't work. Yeah. Um that we, we Could begin- it ever work? Is that like is our big takeaway here that yeah, it can never work? Well, yeah. I mean, as we've said, the judge is pretty clear, is like securities fraud law doesn't really work this way um, for this kind of problem that you're clearly trying to solve. Um, now, it's not just that the case failed. It's that the prosecutors were, were trying this case under New York security law, which is called the Martin Act. And this is seen as a very sort of prosecutor-friendly okay. securities law. It requires you only to – uh, you don't have to prove fraudulent intent, which is the case for a lot of securities fraud suits. You need only to show that you know misstatements or admissions by a company uh, could mislead any reasonable investor. It's seen as a very sort of lax standard. So – Basically, the idea is, like, if it couldn't work under this standard, it really probably isn't going to work anywhere. Prosecutors are rarely held accountable for bad behavior even after a court finds misconduct. But some states are looking to change that. Here to talk about the problem and some possible solutions is Law360 features reporter, Kara Bayless. Welcome to the show, Kara. Hi, thanks for having me. Wow, uh, prosecutorial misconduct is a big topic to tackle. So I wanna start by just talking about how big a problem it actually is. Do we have any stats on how often this comes up? Yeah, um, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to know exactly uh, how widespread it is just because it's hard to know how often it happens uh, where uh, we never learn about yeah, you it. Yeah, ne- it would never come to light. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. But we do have uh, the National Registry of Exonerations, which uh, keeps tally has kept tally on uh, the number of wrongful convictions over the past three decades. And okay. they've, been, they've found uh, that 30% of the 2,500 wrongful convictions uh, since 1989 were caused by prosecutorial misconduct. So we're somewhere in the neighborhood of like 800 cases yeah. over the last 30 years, which is certainly a large And that's number. just in this limited bucket where we can get a firm number. So yeah. it's probably a, an even bigger problem. What, what lurks in the shadows or right. anything like that. Right. And um, before we proceed further, I think it's important to talk about, we've established how wide of a, of a problem we're talking about here. When we talk about misconduct, what kind of behavior are people talking Talking about because you your story hits on like the terms of the debate such as it is are actually like very important here right yeah well it kind of depends on who you ask so for yeah. the statistic that I that we just talked about um, that's any case where uh, prosecutorial misconduct uh, violated a defendant's constitutional rights okay uh, so that might not uh, you know I mean in these cases it did obviously have an effect on the case but it might not always um, if you ask a prosecutor, they'll say that that definition is too broad mm-hmm. and that it should really be limited to cases uh, of bad faith misconduct where, you know, they hid evidence or they uh, convinced a witness to commit perjury to help their case. So basically the prosecutors say it has to be an intentional thing that a, that a prosecutor, prosecutor set out to do 
Um, but other definitions would include mistakes in the moment as well. Right. And the heat of battle, as one of the prosecutors sure. said to me. Yeah. Well, I think to help, I mean, we, we, we could talk about, uh, we, it, it helps talk about a specific instance. And luckily for us, there's a very noteworthy case that just got back from the Supreme Court. This is the uh, Curtis Flowers uh, murder case. He's been, uh, you know, uh, he's been tried. I think he's, he's, he's facing his seventh trial for murder. Much of that stemmed from misconduct. What went on there? Right. Well, the uh, decision came down in June and uh, Justice Kavanaugh, of all people, um, wrote the opinion that the prosecutor um, in that case, Doug Evans, had um, violated Curtis Flowers' uh, constitutional rights by um, eliminating uh, African-Americans from his jury. And he's he's a black man. Yeah. Um, And so he was tried six times, uh, several of those times by an all white jury. Mm -hmm. Um, He was convicted four times and twice the jury was deadlocked and they didn't come to a verdict in those four convictions. they were all overturned uh, because of Doug Evans' misconduct, um, which you know ranged from the uh, sort of race-based jury selection that yeah. we talked about uh-huh. to also uh, bringing up evidence that was inadmissible at trial and also um, questioning uh, witnesses who were on the stand uh, baselessly. Yeah, and if people are starting to think like, oh, I think I've heard about this one. We've talked about it in Per Se before, but also there's a great podcast called In the Dark, and it goes through this whole case in its second season and talks about a lot of what Doug Evans did. Um, it all seems pretty egregious. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the the issue is like, okay, like obviously some would tell you like this is the legal system working. This guy has been convicted uh, wrongfully and we've been back and forth a bunch of times and now they're going to try him again. I think the issue is that we've talked about the misconduct by this prosecutor, Doug Evans, and he's about to try him again for the seventh time. Yeah. And he's faced, uh, as far as we know, like no significant censure for any of this activity, which is kind of what we're talking about here. So let's talk about like what remedies are available to people who like are the victims of prosecutorial misconduct. The first thing, of course, leaps to mind, doesn't apply to Flowers because he's still in an active legal proceeding, but if you, you know, cleanse yourself of your legal troubles, could you sue the prosecutor who, uh, you know, done you wrong? You would think that you could, but you can't because there's a Supreme Court case from the 1970s that uh, yeah. that determined that prosecutors um, are immune from any civil proceeding that uh, involves pretty much anything uh, that they did in the line of duty, uh, even if okay. it's illegal. But and I didn't know that. I mean, I'm sure there are there are experts who are listening who knew that. I, that was surprising to me. I did, I, I did not know that and wouldn't have guessed. Well, okay. So that means you can't civilly sue them. But can they still get in their own criminal trouble? Can a prosecutor be criminally charged for something they did? Technically, yes. Um, you know, I mean, some of the things we're talking about, like uh, suborning perjury, uh, hiding exculpatory evidence, uh, yeah. those things are illegal. They're criminal. Sure. Um, yeah. Obstruction of justice. Sure. Right. Um, but the, it really boils down to the question of who's going to prosecute a prosecutor. You can get a special prosecutor. Um, sometimes uh, an attorney general can be appointed, but it's very, very rare that that happens. It makes sense that it's rare because it would have to rise to such a extreme level that somebody would take the step of, of appointing a special prosecutor and bringing these kind of charges. So it's probably not going to be sort of garden variety 
low-level misconduct, it's probably got to be really bad. Right. And there are a couple of examples, but uh, in both of those, the two cases that we mentioned in the story, you know, uh, each prosecutor got less than a week, I think, of jail time. So people are, are clearly upset with what's gone on here. Let's talk about some of the remedies that people are putting forward uh, and have already and have already kind of like been put into effect, but I know it gets a little a little weedy there. Yeah. Um, well, in New York, there uh, there's been a push for a number of years, and it finally made some traction uh, a couple years ago um, for a commission on prosecutorial conduct. So it would be sort of an independent oversight board where people could uh, bring their concerns um, about misconduct. Uh, it passed, uh, and the governor signed it, but then it was uh, challenged in court by prosecutors who um, who uh, are saying that it, there's a separation of powers issue there uh, because it would be an independent commission, and it would include, you know, judges, lawyers. It would be appointed by the executive branch. Um, so uh, right now it's kind of in legal limbo as to whether it's going to be created or not. And the aim of it was just to have some kind of independent, like, watchdog group for prosecutors? Right. Yeah, okay. that's right. I mean, prosecutors in New York would say, well, we already have a system in place right. for that. Um, there, there are all these grievance committees that are run by the courts uh, that allow people to, uh, you know, point out instances of misconduct. The issue with that is that a lot of it goes on behind closed doors, so it's kind of hard to know. Um, really when someone has been disciplined because there is a lot of censure that never becomes public. Um, And by the time it gets to a level where it is public, it's a pretty um, damning uh, situation. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me on the face of it that prosecutors would want the bad apples out of their ranks because it makes everybody look bad, but um, maybe... There's some pushback to that because of what we talked about earlier in the show, that the definition of what is misconduct versus just sort of heat of the moment in the middle of trial mistakes is so sort of squishy. Yeah. I mean, I did talk to a couple of New York prosecutors who do feel that way, that that when it's a clear bad faith uh, effort, that it absolutely should be, uh, there should be some kind of consequence. And, you know, they there was this example of Mary Rain, who was a prosecutor uh up in upstate New York. And um, she, I mean, the complaint, I think it was like 26 different violations that she had. Um, So, you know, I mean, and and the Prosecutors Association wrote a letter to the grievance committee saying she needs to be out of here. She's making us look bad. So, you know. uh, And it's like not just making the profession look bad, but a lot of our institutions depend on public faith that the system works the way it's supposed to. Right, so absolutely. it really undermines just uh, American justice writ large. Well, and you talk about, I mean, in, 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 in that instance, you're talking about that you talk to some prosecutors who are like, we're, you know, we're capable of sort of doing this, of you know, watchdogging our own profession and calling it out when we see it. Now, that you, you can see how that could lead to some problems. That was the whole point behind this, like, independent panel idea. I mean, what is the what is the story there? Well, there, yeah, there are, there's sort of this new cadre of uh, progressive prosecutors who have been um, elected to office uh, in recent years. And uh, with sort of the uptick in that, there's also an uptick in these conviction integrity units, which are these internal groups that, uh, within the prosecutor's office, that look into uh, past past cases where there was some kind of allegation of misconduct, of a wrongful conviction. And so if it's a case where the, where they believe there was a wrongful conviction, 
they'll um, invest, reinvestigate it and look into it and see if, uh, if it merits um, reinvestigation. Uh, and so, ho- so the hope is that if there was a case where um, uh, there was a wrongful conviction because of prosecutorial misconduct, that then they would uh, reopen the case, get the person exonerated, and perhaps even uh, you know, there would be consequences for that prosecutor. That hasn't really happened yet. Right. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot. I mean, I mean, I this is a government-run thing. It's like it sounds like a lot of steps to go through. And if you want to be careful, you're meeting out justice here. You know, like and, and things in that regard. But you can see how people would be skeptical of that. I think, especially since it's yeah. run by prosecutors. I mean, I see the skepticism argument too of like, oh yeah, you're just going to police yourself now all of a sudden. But I mean, there is a backdrop in what's going on in prosecutors' offices and how they're different from 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, it used to be all of the sort of 1980s, 90s style pushing for heavy sentences for every crime you can think of and really like um, people running for various other jobs too, saying yeah. that they're going to back these prosecutors that are very law and order minded, throw the book at them. And that's just not really the climate we're in right now, especially what you said, Kara, about more progressive prosecutors being in a lot of these offices that they're looking to have a more community-based approach to how we, we deal out justice. So maybe that's part of why they think they can do this themselves. Right. I mean, some of these prosecutors, like in Philadelphia and San Francisco, they're former public defenders. Uh, so they've been on the other side of this. Um, and they seem more interested in sort of uh, decriminalizing or uh, decarcerating uh, right. for, for minor offenses. Um, and there are going in Philadelphia, while they haven't gone after former prosecutors, they have gone over after quite a few police officers. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a, a very, it's a big sea change uh, within a few offices. Uh, you're starting to see this cultural shift. So we'll have to see if that cultural shift actually plays out in them being able to police their own misconduct or if that doesn't actually play out the way they hope it will. That's right. Kara, it's such an interesting issue, and you wrote a very interesting story. Uh, thanks for talking it through with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Dinner show is something offbeat, and uh, Bill, I know you have one to talk about today. Yeah, we had a couple of options to talk about. We could have done the, uh, I just want everyone to understand the stakes here that we chose this one over the story about a lawyer writing into a legal document, eat a bowl of. Yeah. So, so like, I mean, st- standard's pretty high. We chose this one over that. I just want everyone to understand. <laughs> well, um, go Google that if you want it. It's on Above the Law. You'll uh, love it. I'll say, at least we got to say it. So, that's um, good. But so, okay, so we're at the Second Circuit. I'm just going to jump right into the story. We're not even going to give you like a news lead here. We're at the Second Circuit, and a Queens-based attorney named Todd C. Bank was before a panel of three Second Circuit judges. Um, he's representing an attorney named Robert Doyle, uh, who was challenging the fact that as part of the process to to be admitted to the bar for the Eastern District of New York, the federal court in Brooklyn, um, that y- you have to submit w- what's called a character affidavit. So you have to ask a ju- uh, an attorney who is part of the bar to sort of vouch for you. Yeah. And it's um, you can choose whoever you want if you can they give it to you and then you submit it. So it's it's not a super rigorous process, but that's part of the process of becoming barred at the at the federal court there. Um, they sued saying that that uh, had a whole bunch of different constitutional problems, that it was due process, that first amendment issues. Um, 
the case was tossed out in a district court. So um, uh, Bank, this attorney, and the attorney he was representing, Doyle, appealed to the Second Circuit, which heard arguments yesterday. Cue the tape. Morning. I represent Robert Doyle, the appellant. I, I think our briefs uh, were rather thorough, thorough, and at least to my satisfaction, addressed all of the issues, having reviewed the opening brief and obviously the reply brief as well. So my question is whether the court has any questions, because I, otherwise I'd just be essentially uh, reading from or reiterating the points in my brief, which I don't, I'm assuming the, the court is familiar with the issues. So my, my question is, are there any questions? No question. I have a question. Okay. I don't understand why the appeal is brought. I mean, your client controls whatever affidavit he submits to get admitted, and if it's not an affidavit that he likes, he doesn't need to submit it. So I don't, I don't understand uh, why, uh, why, why you're here. It's not a, well, it's not a question of whether he likes an affidavit. His, and- his due process concern is that uh, um, uh, because he has to submit an affidavit, if the affidavit is negative, then that somehow hurts him. But he controls who he gets an affidavit from, he, and he controls whether to submit it. And if he doesn't like an affidavit, he can go get another one, right? His fear of a negative affidavit, Judge, with all due respect, has nothing to do with this case. I'm, I'm That's what that, rather that was the explanation on what the, the um, perceived injury is. No. No, it wasn't that at all. What's the injury? Are you serious, Judge? With all due re- no, with all due respect, I, I, I don't know what to say. You know what? I withdraw my question. You can okay. sit down. Thank okay, you. well, thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much, Judge. We'll hear from... Uh, I see that you read the briefs thoroughly. Listen, you know, you're, you are acting inappropriately. You are acting inappropriately. State of shock. I'm sorry. Well, well, you are acting in a disrespectful and discourteous manner. And that's not appropriate. Good morning, Your Honors. Uh, Assistant United States Attorney Matthew Modafferi from the Eastern District of New York on behalf of Defendant Apelli. Um, the District Court properly dismissed this action for failure to state a claim. Um, and unless the Court has any questions for, uh, for us, uh, we, we rest on our arguments set forth in our brief. All right, thank you. We'll reserve decision. Oh, you've waived. Please. You've waived rebuttal. You've waived rebuttal. You've waived rebuttal. You're excused. You are excused. Take this gentleman out of the court. Right now. Thank you. Sir, sir, leave, leave. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't listen to. The, I didn't listen all the way when we before the show. Bill sent me to pitch the segment. Yeah. Obviously, I didn't listen all the way to the very end. So let's just. I mean, just right off the jump. Total power move by our our guy in the in the government uh, by just being like. I don't have anything to add. I was like, uh, this is writing, right. writing appears to be on the wall, Jim. That seems like just the smartest move, right? But just be like, yeah, I don't even need it. Would, it also sounded like he was sort of almost laughing as he was up there. <laughs> um, second of all, wh- wh- why are you here? Like, why are they here? 
<laughs> oral arguments are optional. Yeah. They are there for the appellant's benefit yeah. so that you can make your case better to the panel. If you if you think that your briefs said everything, you are entitled to not to waive. Uh, it, yeah. it, it doesn't make any sense that they were there in the first place. I guess is a it, right like yeah. I mean, for me the for me the the real appeal is like the uh, is like the slow build. You can sense friction in the questions, but like sure. sometimes you get tough questions in courts. Like whatever. And then, like when he, oh, it takes a turn. And then when he, and then he just like a like a drastic escalation when he's like, oh, I guess you read the briefs. It was like amazing. <laughs> it was like totally great. I actually think my favorite part is when um, <laughs> someone points out that the lower court tossed the whole thing for failure to state a claim. Yeah, yeah. Because right. you're like, oh yeah, of course they did. I'm also here not literally not stating a claim <laughs> verbally. <laughs> the other thing, on a more serious note, that I wanted to raise is that. His like on a in a substantive sense, in terms of the actual case, his indignation doesn't make any sense. Judge Chin, who was the one who asked that question, it it was right on point to what what was in the brief. I'll read the because remember he says fear of negative the 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 attorney says yeah uh, that Doyle's quote fear of a negative affidavit judge with all due respect has nothing to do with this case. That's not that's not true. In in page fourteen <laughs> of Banks' own brief, quote an applicant requests. To be the applicant's sponsor, a bar member who, unbeknownst to the applicant, finds the applicant's political or religious beliefs to be <laughs> abhorrent, on which basis the sponsor provides an affidavit that negatively assesses the applicant's character. Because the affidavit was sought solely in order to comply with the affidavit requirement, the inability to appeal that assessment clearly violates the applicant's rights under the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. So it just, to, wow. to, to respond to the question of like, well, walk me through your due process yeah. argument. With like that doesn't have anything to do with the case. It's just it, it doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. So my big question after hearing that is, the attorney obviously, when it was his turn, did get barred into the the what where are we in Southern District of New York? Eastern Eastern, Eastern District. District of New York. I wonder if the person who wrote his affidavit really regrets it now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's a good right? point. <laughs> well, it's funny that you bring up. So this isn't the first time Todd Bank has popped onto the uh, the radar of the of the the legal industry. Okay. Um, back in 2009, he sued a Queens housing court after um, a judge refused to allow him to wear jeans and a baseball cap that read Operation Desert Storm uh, when he was in her courthouse. Uh, two years later, a Second Circuit panel, which I should note, featured one of the same judges that was on the panel this week, oh, man. Um, rejected those arguments and said that Bank, quote, had no legal basis for concluding that a lawyer's interest in dressing as he pleases when appearing in court rises to the level of a fundamental constitutional right. I wonder if his wow. brief was like, wow, so you hate the troops. You won't let me wear Operation <laughs> Desert Storm merch. And I'll leave us off. <laughs> I'll leave us off with that it's not even the first time we've heard about Bank this week. Okay. Which I realize is like really burying the lead here that we're getting to this at the end. But earlier in the week, a case that Bank filed at the Federal Circuit arguing that uh, that he was entitled to cancel a trademark because it was, quote, demeaning to goats <laughs> was rejected by the Federal yep. Circuit. That oh, man. Great. That, that case is great. So the background of that one, if I correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, uh, it was at a restaurant or something like that that has... Um, goats that live full time, like on the yeah. roof. So there's like an area for them or whatever, and it's part of their branding. That they're oh, it's that place with the goats. It and has like a it has grass on the roof. and yeah. there's goats on the yeah, roof. Yeah. So right. they applied. They they argued that they could register as a trademark of the, of their company this the, the idea that of goats on 
the roof. So Bank filed a case that sought to cancel that trademark, arguing that it was demeaning to goats. Uh, the Federal <laughs> Circuit rejected that this week, and um, they called the case frivolous. So <laughs> tough week all around for our guy, Todd C. Bank. Indeed. Um, we will, I guess, keep an eye on on what oh, he's up to. I really hope that we do, and yeah. we'll save that for future much weeks. Like, m- much like Bank, we will now leave. Leave, sir. <laughs> we will. That'll conclude our show for today. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week. And Alex. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Kara Bayless, and contributing reporters, Keith Goldberg, Mike Curley, and Mike Lasusa. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glassman. If you like Pro Se, do us a favor and leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. I want to tell you why that matters. It gives us a boost on the charts and helps other people find our show. For more information about anything we talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast, including that story about goats on a roof. And we'll see you back here next week. Thanks. <laughs>